to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Makoto Fujimura, who's an artist, writer, and speaker, who's recognized worldwide as a cultural shaper. He's a presidential appointee to the National Council on the Arts from 2003 to 2009. He is also the author of his latest book, which is called Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. This is a conversation I've been really excited about and really looking forward to. So I really want to thank you for being on The Deep Dive. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. You know, the book immediately, you know, caught my eye. I was on Twitter and I was, you know, kind of scrolling through mm-hmm. as I'm as I'm prone to do. And another person who actually was a guest on The Deep Dive, who's a theologian out of um, Duke University, Norman Wiersbe, he... Oh, sure. Yeah, he mentioned the book like in his thread. And like I said, he's been a guest on the show and I've really been an admirer of his work. And we had a really amazing conversation. And I said, you know, if Norman is promoting this or talking about it or is expressing excitement about reading it, I should at least take a look. And once (laughs) I did that, I was really excited about the premise, the ideas, the way in which you're engaging with this idea of a, a theology of of making. And even the, the title, yeah. I think, invites conversation. So I think that's a perfect place for us to start yeah. in yeah. why did you choose to connect these two ideas and call the book Art and Faith, The Theology of Making? Yeah, no, that's great. And it's great to be on a podcast with somebody in Brooklyn. My second son is a musician rapper and he is in Brooklyn. So <laughs> maybe you can connect with him. But he's but, a good you company. Know, yeah. You know, New York City has this creative reality to it. You know, I raised my children, basically what became ground zero in Tribeca area. But, you know, I think creativity and imagination were definitely we were forced to reckon with the reality of 9-11 and, and restoration, trying to restore afterwards. And I think even this book, how it is written, it, it's almost in a necessary response to trauma and darkness that we go through, fractures and you know polarization that we see in certainly in this, this country. But you know, human affairs, you know, and we tend to want to fix things. You know, that's our propensity is to, you know, try to get back to normal, right? That's what we're talking about. Let's get back to normal someday, you know. When things shift and turn and sometimes these fractures remain and we need a new way of talking about something that's very important to us um, and certainly as an artist, you know, I'm kind of border stocking the wider margins of culture that has no definitive categories. And so these tribal zones that has been instrumentoring, you know, producing divisive culture wars rhetoric, 
for an artist, you know, we're very uncomfortable <laughs> in any place that narrows it down too far. And so we end up bo- walking the borders, you know, kind of like Brooklyn, right? <laughs> you're, you're kind of, you know, you cross the Brooklyn Bridge and you're able to, you know, walk around and look at the neighborhoods. And and I, I think that that's kind of the feel I have about theology where, and I, I've always said that, you know, Jesus is a border walker. You know, Jesus is surely part of the tribe, and yet he takes his sheep outside the gates and, you know, helps them to find nourishment. So oftentimes in culture, you know, we have these young sheep, <laughs> like my son, you know, going out to the borderlands and exploring and finding nourishment, actually. Oftentimes, the church would not recognize that as anything beneficial. And yet I find over time that these artists who are discovering these new forms of art or creating new forms of expression are exactly creating type of nourishment that we need. And furthermore, my point of the book is that God loves that, you know, that, that this is not anything transgressive to God, but the God is also outside of time and space. And from our perspective, therefore, outside of this anthropocentric reality, you know, that God doesn't need us. <laughs> we think we are needed you know, for ourselves and for God. We try to prove that, fight culture wars to, you know, defend our turf because, you know, if we don't, we're going to lose everything. Well, that's that's not true. You know, biblically speaking, God never said that God needed us. In fact, God created everything out of, this exuberance of love and joy. So God, you know, in my mind, sang creation into being, dances over us with singing. It's exactly, you know, what happens in streets of Brooklyn, right? People are, you know, like hip hop, you know, comes out of these margins. And I began to believe that God is, the Holy Spirit is there affirming our inclinations to explore the margins and become, in a sense, bring in the new new creation into being. And so, you know, my journey as an artist, not only painting and writing and so forth, but really living in New York City, I think, has produced this book. And, you know, as I listen to you tell your story and I connect it to the book itself and just kind of my own perspective and shared lived experiences. You know, when you start talking about the margins, a lot of what I always say is as someone who is a, as a cultural anthropologist and works in strategy is that culture exists on the margins. So yes. when I hear you use that language to describe the way in, in which you center religion and theology and your experience with Jesus in your work, it instantly resonates with me in a particular way. And what what I'd like to do with this question is, it might not be a perfect framing, but because I feel like there's a lot of different connected tissue in the way we think about art. Oftentimes, art is projected in those culture wars that you described as being a secular experience. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. artists themselves painting with a broad brush might not all be what I'll call traditionally religious, but many are, but some are not, but they describe their creative process as one that is spiritual. Mm -hmm. And 
for a long time, the church was a patron of the arts, right? So, you know, how do you pull all of that together? And mm-hmm. again, this notion of the making process being one that is linked to and part of a theological process. Yeah. So number one thing that you, you find is that people are makers, you know, whether you call yourself an artist or, you know, accountant or plumber or whatever you're doing, you know, there's a part of us that is human doings, you know, but we are human beings. And, you know, that distinction of moving from doing to being or maybe doing as part of being is a journey that all of us are on in some respects and sometimes aware, sometimes not so aware. But, you know, I always say, I always think that at the end of the day, when we look back to our lives and when we talk about perhaps two or three things that you would take to your deathbed, you know, these are not things that we have done necessarily. They're not the accomplishments. They're not, you know, how many cars you have in your garage. They're they're not the things you own. These intangible things that, you know, you cannot define. It's the conversation that you, you know, you had with your daughter walking toward ground zero one day, absolutely spent of any kind of energy or hope and something that she says you will always remember, you know, and it's the conversation that you had with a friend or something that reshaped your life, a mentor telling you something, then those things cannot be marketed or bought or sold. Um, They simply exist as a gift. And art and expression, you know, is fundamentally a gift. It's not a commodity, even though there's nothing wrong with commoditizing them in a transactional sense. But if they only become a transactional you know, product, you lose the soul of whatever it is you're doing. And everybody, every artist knows this. It doesn't matter if you, you know, hate the church and you're an atheist. Every artist knows that there's fundamentally the, the spirit is operating in the gift arena that you are part of. And you knew this as a child. That's your first love. You know, and I, I always think that if we can go back there to know what is it that, you know, gave you joy as a child or gave you a perspective beyond yourself, those are the things that will last. And so by definition, we do things that is not pragmatic or utilitarian. <laughs> and those are the things that tend to last. That's how human beings are wired. And so we are created to be creative. We are creatures of imagination. And yet, you know, there is no essence of how that is promoted in either in the culture at large or in the church. And when you read the Bible and the whole project of theology you're making is to read the Bible as, you know, assuming that God is this artist who created in abundance and created extravagantly, not because God needed to, or, you know, God would, you know, had any kind of a personal need for the world or the universe or the cosmos or us, but that God is love. And what love does is to create something that doesn't make sense, right? So, you know, I would say like, if you're taking someone out on a date, you don't do accounting, 
<laughs> you know, you don't do the utilitarian thing. You might do that, you know, after a while. But the first day, you're going to do something beautiful. You're going to, you know, go out and waste time together, right? And that's love. So God is creating the world out of love, which means God is utterly, there's no need, but there's utter invitation that is being given for this banquet, for this feast, <laughs> you know? And so, so it's a different mindset than a lot of times in religious conversations, we leave out, you know, certainly this element of playfulness or, you know, even wastefulness <laughs> of God's creation, the extravagance, the abundance. And we fall back into these conversations about what do we do because, you know, the world is scarce and we have to fight for every inch and we have to win at all costs. When God is constantly saying, Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount is, keeps saying, you know, there's abundance out there. Look at the birds of the air, you know, the, look at the lilies of the field. And it's counterintuitive, you know, uh, first century you know, Nazarene saying that, you know, even though you have been oppressed, you have been abused, you have been persecuted, you have been, you're poor, you have nothing, but you're supposed to look at the world and say, wow, you know, God has made all things beautiful and abundant. And furthermore, this person, Jesus, is bringing in the new creation, which he is inviting us to be part of. Like we are supposed to activate our imagination to create something new into the world, to create a new wineskin because the old wineskin is breaking apart, right? The systems, the, the new wine is so fantastically effusive and life-giving that it's, the old wineskin is not going to hold. So we have to create a new wineskin together and God is inviting us. And so that was happening in the first century and it continues to happen today in our stricken land, you know, in our ground zeros, in the places that we find difficulty even communicating to each other. And, you know, there's so much to unpack there because it touched on quite a few of the questions and kind of outline that I've prepared in preparation for this conversation, the ideas of what's tangible and what's intangible as it relates to use. And you touched on on that because art, you know, when you make and bring something into the world, it is a physical thing in the sense that it has weight and takes up space. But the process itself is one that is that starts in the intangible. And doesn't have the so-called practical use, right? It's not utilitarian right. as you've described. So how I want to frame that is as an extension of this concept that you talk about where making is knowing. Yes. And, and then the addendum I had to that is knowing intertwined with this idea of faith. Yes. Thank you. And my friend of mine, who's a clinical psychologist, says that, you know, we don't think bottom up, right, left. And what he means by that is when we are born into the world, we first learn by touch and taste and smell. And, and then that knowledge, somatic knowledge, you know, goes up into the brain as the brain is forming. And it goes into the affective side first, meaning that we touch things and we say, well, that that's warm and that is inviting, but develop these emotions of attachment, hopefully, to the world through a mother and our parents. Language 
formation happens like way after that, right? So those effective feelings become words and the words, you know, begin to identify, that's my mom, that's my dad, that's my brother. And then rational information (laughs) begins to, you know, formulate how we see the world. And he says, you know, what happens in the world in classrooms and in churches? It's backwards. You know, you're trying to force information from the left side of analytical side and saying, well, this is this is how you understand God. This is how you prove God's existence. So this is how, and, you know, and you study the Bible and not that all of these things are wrong. It's just that it's ineffective because you're forcing the left side to go into the right side, which is really hard to do if you think about it. And then furthermore, you're trying to get the right side to push into the action of your body. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, how Sunday church doesn't translate into Monday and, you know, Friday work life, that's because we're doing it backwards. You know? And we should be saying is that, you know, life, as you noted, there's a kind of a paradox in operation where materiality and substance and the weight of physicality that we get to touch and we get to feel is the way to the spirit, <laughs> you know, as opposed to spirit being kind of a Gnostic realm where where you, you know, it's like this ether and you're supposed to like, you know, tap into that. That may be part of one of the ways that you can do it, but most of us will find that very difficult because we are somatic beings. And so I, in the book, you know, I, I, I talk about Jack Papin's omelet, right? So, uh, you know, I, I moved to Princeton and I, I had chickens and they laid fresh eggs, right? So I'm looking on YouTube <laughs> to look at Jack Papin making omelets over and over. Like, I'm like, you know, obsessed. Like, how do you make an omelet? How do you, how do you make a good, good omelet, right? So the omelet is like, the simplest information-wise, it's just your egg, you know, <laughs> and maybe water, you know, and a pan, right? And heat. It's just as simple as you're going to get. And yet, if you try to turn that recipe information into a real omelet, it doesn't work. <laughs> Something always goes wrong. And I, like, I'm like looking at my omelet. It doesn't look anything like Jack Papan's omelet. <laughs> and, and I'm like, so this simple translation of going from a recipe to an actual omelet. And the test of, a, you know, whether you know an omelet or not is not whether you know a recipe. You have to taste it, right? You have to taste it. If it's good, then you know it, right? So that is obvious to us. And yet in the world, we don't apply this. So as an artist, you know, I'm used to fading all the time in my craft. And I'm used to people saying, well, I don't understand that or I don't understand this. And, you know, I I just assume that communication is very difficult, if not impossible. So I am amazed when anything communicates, right? But, you know, a simple omelet can communicate. Simple omelet can communicate love. Simple, you know, through taste and through what it does to us, to our bodies, certainly it nourishes our bodies. And to me, that's the real knowledge. So making is knowing in that sense. And if you apply that to the Bible, what do we know about God? Right. That's the question. We want to know God, but we have been 
arguing about it, debating. We have been, you know, <laughs> uh, creating these categories, denominations. We have been, you know, split over talking about who's right and who's wrong when we haven't made anything, <laughs> you know, since the Middle Ages, right? We haven't really made beauty into the world or we haven't really created a way, you know, there, there was a time when monks made beer, right? And they saw that as a fundamentally part of their ministry to the world to nourish the world, to feed the world, and to have these transactional, you know, capitalistic system that will feed the poor. And we haven't, since we haven't been making, we're just consumers. You know, we're just consuming things that other people have made, perhaps. And we created churches that are mega churches or, you know, like they're like consumer-driven mechanisms that, you know, maybe can sustain itself as a business practice, for-profit business perhaps, or non-profit business, but it doesn't make anything new and beautiful and extravagant into the world. And so that's kind of the critique yeah. <laughs> in the nutshell of the book. <laughs> I mean, I think I actually, when I got to the point about Jacques Pepin, I laughed to myself because... <laughs> I used to love his show when it was on PBS, like Channel 13 yeah. here in New York. It was just on all the time. And I have like a Jacques Pepin cookbook, like one of the first cookbooks I ever bought, just because he was, to your point, just a, a quick editorial about Jacques Pepin before we get back to the main point. <laughs> is, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I found his style actually very comforting. It, yes. it was less about what he was making at any particular moment, but it was the way in which he presented it, the tone of his voice, the look of the studio, like everything felt to me quite meditative. Yes. And that's one of the words that I wrote down here when I was reading the book was thinking about, as you described this beauty and bringing beauty into the world and this process, that so much of it to me sounded meditative in its nature. And so when we got to the Jacques Pepin part, I kind of chuckled to myself because I felt all those things and I wasn't expecting to see his name pop up in this book. <laughs> you know, so that was a welcome surprise. You know, I want to segue, and you've mentioned these two conceits before, this idea of abundance and scarcity. And I wholeheartedly agree with that notion. And I talk about it a lot, not in the theological sense, but just in the way in which we have designed the way the systems of the world work. It's usually with this notion that, like you said, it's win or lose. It's very didactic in that sense. And it's, and it's not expansive. And an abundance metaphor to me is one that invites expansion of what we all know most primarily love. And what I wanted to do is somehow tie the scarcity piece, however, because we talk about the creative process as one of abundance. But if I look at some art, if I think about the United States 20th century art, some of it does come out of traditions of incredible suffering. Yes. So if I, I think about the Negro spiritual tradition, which led to blues, and obviously that tradition comes out of enslaved peoples, right? And so how do we think about that creative process that is born of scarcity, but then has created some great beauty into the world as well. And trauma, right? I, I mean, there's when you think about enduring art, if you removed in all the writings and art that came out of 
directly came out of trauma or front lines wars, you lose 80% of maybe more. You know, you, you wouldn't have Hemingway. You wouldn't have J.J. Salinger. You, you're not going to have the, you know, these exiles from Europe that came over to New York City, the Harlem Renaissance, as, as you know, the, you know, or the blues. And it almost seems like you have to experience real scarcity and brokenness in order to create something that is abundant because it requires faith, you know, requires faith to believe that after having lost everything that you can face a blank canvas that you can't afford, (laughs) you know, to dare to say something or to, you know, not sell away your trumpet and continue to play even though you can't pay rent. Those acts, to me, very much part of a human journey into abundance. So they're not, you know, predicated by, you know, the definition of abundance being, you know, having a lot of wealth or property or it's the abundance that is built within us that always, if you let it sneak out of you, we will begin to cry out because we are not made for the zero-sum game. We're, we're made for a place of a feast, you know, and like Babette in Babette's Feast says, you know, an artist, a great artist is never poor, you know, and so artists kind of understand instinctively this reality of abundance facing their scarcity, and that's why they're so important to us today, right? That everybody thinks, well, we're, you know, we're losing our whatever ideology of, you know, <laughs> whatever we believe in. But really, that's not a proper way to steward with love when everybody, you know, today, certainly after 2020, we're all sharing in the suffering, communion of suffering of the pandemic, of the racial strife, of all that has been exposed in 2020 and now being exposed, you know, in January of 2021, and realizing that, you know, those are things that, we, you know, like that capital incident happened on an epiphany, you know, that those are things that are being revealed. And, you know, we can't just scapegoat and say, well, those people are stupid, you know, they were upset, and, and they were so wrong to do what they did. I mean, we can we can say that legally, but but really what's happening is it's exposing our hearts. We are laid bare before the fabric of the universe. And God is looking at that and saying, I still love you. <laughs> you know, in fact, I am more attuned to your pain than ever before because of what's happening, because of the pain that you're feeling there is something that I, you know, God is inviting us to. And I think that is the world of making, you know, like like these artists, like Frangelico painted during the Black Plague. Shakespeare, right, couldn't build his theater in, in London because of the Black Plague. So he built it outside of London and created this, you know, layered systems where these patrons gets to sit on one quarantined area, right? And, and Romeo and Juliet is set up so that the commoners speak to the queens of the world. And it's a brilliant way of handling trauma, <laughs> collective trauma. 
and he created something absolutely enduring into the world. And we, we, we get to, you know, Romeo did not know what was happening. Oh, is it the other way? Juliet did not yeah, know. What yeah, because the guy was, the messenger was quarantined. So, you know, here's a real lived experience during the Black Plague, which lasted three generations, you know, not a year, three generations. And out of that came out the Renaissance. So, you know, I just have to say that, you know, there's certainly a way to look at this time, very difficult time of suffering and pain and loss and darkness as a way to understand what is it that we value the most and how do we learn from those who have created in darkness, such as our, you know, African-American brothers and sisters who did not choose to necessarily create their own KKK, you know, in response. They chose to sing and create, make quilts when, you know, underground railroad map done on, on the quilt, you know. And those, those are just such beautiful examples of peacemaking faced with, you know, scraps of, you know, that they had left. They didn't have anything, but they had scraps. So they created woven quilts, beautiful quilts out of what they had. And we can learn something from that today. And so I, I feel like, you know, there, there's just so many examples of blues, jazz, certainly art that came out of post-war times and literature from Dante to Wendell Berry. You know, I think that these all speak about the same thing, which is how to create abundance faced with scarcity. And as you were talking, as you've been sharing this conversation, it's, you mentioned, again, words that we often only frame in certain perspectives, these ideas of trauma and understanding sort of the way in which things can be broken. And you started the conversation talking about our propensity to want to fix things, right? And it reminded me, I think it's a perfect segue, and I'm keeping an eye on the time because I want to get you out on time. And correct me if I pronounce it incorrectly, but the ideology around Kintsugi. Yes. Yes, Kintsugi. And, and, oh, perfect. I'm glad I got that right. And, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it really touched me in a way because it talks about mending and taking things that are broken and not so much making them whole which I thought was a key distinction, but yeah. using their brokenness to make them in turn more, more beautiful. Yeah. And it reminded me of a drumbeat that I've had for the long time that we are in a crisis of care. That the analogies and the way in which we are framing the many issues that are confronting society are not, the metaphors that we use should be metaphors around care, how we care for each other, how we care for the planet and so on and so forth. So when I read about Kintsugi, I wanted you to to spend some time on why you, you thought it was important to include that in this narrative and what it has meant to you as an artist and a maker and a thinker. Yeah, and certainly going through my journey of darkness and brokenness, I realized I resonated with Kintsugi. Kintsugi came out of tea tradition, high tea tradition in Japan, which really was refined in 16th century by a tea master, Sen Norikyu, who basically invented or harnessed this idea of wabi-sabi, you know, we know what we know to be Japanese aesthetic today. And that is to value things that common or something that's been used by 
the poor or, you know, and bring that into high tea. So for instance, he would intentionally bring Korean bowls and Japan was invading Korea at the time and Nikki opposed that, served Hideyoshi the shogun with a black bowl made by a Korean potter <laughs> just to communicate without saying a word. And Hideyoshi understood this and ask Nikki to commit suicide because, <laughs> you know, the ritualistic suicide because this was unacceptable. But so this art form of peacemaking was burst at the most conflicted time in Japanese history, the literally called the war period, Sengoku Jidai. And so first of all, you have to ask yourself, why is that possible? You know, how did that happen? And what was in Japanese culture at the time that allowed this corona to appear, you know, in the skies. And then Kintsugi came out of that tradition as the Kintsugi families will often have these really important bowls that were served in high tea, has stories attached to it, and that will break because Japan has many earthquakes. And they will not fix it right away. You know, they don't throw it away. <laughs> they, they don't fix it right away. They hold on to it for two, three generations to pass on that story to their children and their grandchildren. And, and then at some point, they will give it to a Japan lacquer master to mend it, but mend it with gold, as you noted. So rather than hiding the fractures, they amplify the fractures by blowing rivers of gold through the fractures. And the resulting ball, Kintsugi ball, is more valuable than the original because the Japanese consider this process of mending to be such an important act of creating beauty into the world. And it's an incredible metaphor and the way to understand new creation, biblical new creation. Jesus invited Thomas to touch his wounds. So this is post-resurrection. So that means that Jesus' nail marks are with him in eternity. And it's by his wounds we are healed. And so the wounds, the nail marks are really, really important in new creation somehow. So Kintsugi allows us to enter into the possibility that perhaps that even the wounds of us, the fragments, the fissures that we experience in life, the brokenness, could that be? the entry point into new creation. And there's no clear answer to that. As, as I talk about in the book, new creation comes to us and it's almost as if this invitation for mystery. So it's not as if you can define and, you know, but theology of new creation is important because we have been so f fixated and rightly so on the redemptive work of Christ. And so Good Friday, Right. And then, of course, the resurrection Sunday and then the Pentecost and Ascension. Right. But we don't ask ourselves, like, so what happens after that? <laughs> you know, of course, the church is birthed after that at the Pentecost and all that historically. But we don't really get the message. Many of the sermons tend to be focused on believe in Jesus and you're saved. Right. So and that that's not wrong. But it's incomplete because it's believing in Jesus and, and you're saved and you're invited into the new creation and you are the new creation. And you're supposed to create the new wineskin so God can come back <laughs> and fill that. 
<laughs> we don't preach that part. So, you know, artists are kind of sitting in the back wearing black, <laughs> you know, exile from, you know, even me as a leader in the church, you know, I don't like to sit in front because I, you know, I like the margins, you know, and I find all these artists there, you know, musicians there and I hang out with them. But we kind of lost the ability to move into the world, like accepting the fractures and brokenness of the world, like as if like a Kintsugi master, right, will look at the fragments, pieces, and he or she would look at the fragments without trying to mend it or trying to just look at it and and will spend like days looking at it. And Kintsugi master Nakamura-san, who I work with to create these kits now that we've been making available through Kintsugi Academy, he said, you know, the greatest act is to behold. And if you can look at that fragment and find it beautiful, then you're truly a Kintsugi master. Now, when I heard that, he's not a Christian, but I was like, oh my gosh, that is the message for the church. <laughs> you know, can we look at the world? Can we look at people? Can we look at me, you know, in our brokenness? Can you behold, you know, the fragment until you find that beautiful? To me, that's the gospel. You know, that's the entry point. That's what Jesus does with us. And if we can do that, then perhaps we can start this journey toward healing in this nation, you know, where the Sunday morning is not the most segregated hour <laughs> of the week. Absolutely. You know, perhaps, you know, perhaps we can start mending, putting the pieces back together to remember, right? So re-dash member. You know, we, we connect the broken pieces back together to recall those places, but done in a new way. So to let the Kintsugi master work it generationally, you know, with us. And, and so Kintsugi brings all these elements to the table, which is a fantastic way. And by the way, this is, you know, I've been doing Kintsugi with a lot of people and it's amazing how this communicates to people outside of church. It's just remarkable. And, you know, I think that communication and the wholeness of the concepts is really what attracted someone like myself. And I think is what will yeah. resonate is the universality of these messages. Like you said, yeah. even if someone is not of the church, is not Christian, atheist, yeah. secular, there's yeah. something to yeah. be pulled from all of this. You know, I want to get you out on this question which is about yeah. stewardship, which is concept woven in the book. It's it's woven in my work. And, you know, in the book, it, one of the key points that jump out about stewardship is this notion of it being the love of land and its people. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I use my definition of stewardship as the shared responsibility of a society to oversee, protect, and pass mm -hmm. on its critical mm -hmm. resources over the course of generations. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in that, though, not expressly mentioning the love, yes. this responsibility is sort of love in action, and at least in my mind, maybe not clearing the definition. Oh, absolutely. So I wanted you to go out on this exploration a little bit of stewardship mm -hmm. and how it is so central to us putting together these, um, these broken pieces as we make, whether art or otherwise. Yeah, it's impossible to be a good steward without love. It's just impossible. And so love is what unites us, uh, brings you know, us through difficult times. Love allows unconditionally to see us as we are, but 
receiving even ourselves and our enemies into a place of beholding. And stewardship is fundamentally the role that human beings are asked to play and that leads to making because making requires the understanding of the materials. You know, if you're a good steward, of a chicken, the chicken is going to lay an egg, you know, and the egg is stewarded well into an omelet. You have a picture of this human activity to make something, and that making will nourish us. But because we have not been doing that well, either the land or ourselves or each other, we got trapped into this cycle of negativity and, you know, divisiveness and fighting culture wars rather than caring for culture and stewarding the soil of culture and, you know, tending it, which is hard work. And it doesn't produce right away. So there's going to be seasons where you don't see anything happen, but that's part of the plan. And so I think we need to get back to that desperately. American history is full of these signposts. And I I will place the African-American response to slavery and, you know, making jazz and Harlem Renaissance and all these things, blues, you know, they, they're all part of how we can mend to make new without trying to fix the world. There's a beautiful way that we can understand the blues, you know, because it's incomplete in some way, right? And it affirms that it's not, we're not going to fix it. You know, the trauma is not going to be over, <laughs> but we can begin on the journey toward beholding each other, mending by looking at the fractures, finding that beautiful in itself. And then we can journey together because, you know, every single person on this earth today is affected by this virus in some way. So we have this communion of suffering that we can share and we can create out of. And if we can do that, that will be a world that is, you know, and and we'll be able to look at what we have done and find that to be beautiful as well. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. We usually yeah. have two segments of the show, but I skipped those. Oh, I love it. Well, let's, let's do it again. I love this. Yeah, I, I, I skipped those talk because about. I wanted to really spend time with you, but I'm I'm more than happy to do another one. Um, and, yeah, we can, and we can do all the other segments of the show. Well, hopefully we can do it in person and uh, you can meet my son. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if he's in Brooklyn, we're, you know, you're part of the Brooklyn family yeah. now. So we're going to pull all of you in. And um, it's been a fantastic conversation. I, I want to thank you, Mako, for taking the time with me. The book is fantastic and it's also beautifully designed. I always want to highlight when yeah. a piece of work is beautiful. So thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Okay, Phil. Thank you. God bless you. It's been a pleasure having Makoto Fujimura join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts or our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.